you very, very much. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. We had a wonderful uh, time of fellowship and uh, ministry together back in Tennessee. We're very thankful to the, uh, the uh, Greenville, Tennessee congregation for their hospitality, and they send their greetings back to you. I gave yours to them, and uh, they are... They are delighted. They're a newer church in the denomination. They've been around quite a while, but they came uh, to the BPC out of the uh, PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, and have been a huge blessing uh, since they came. And we're thankful that they were able to host Synod this year. Uh, the theme of Synod was revival. It's interesting that that subject was chosen and and the notification of it sent out and invitations to speak and all of that uh, for the Synod meetings came out two days before the Asbury revival hit the news. Uh, so it was a rather timely subject to think about what the scriptures actually say about revival. I did, I think I sent this out in an email. Pretty sure I did. Um, but uh, you can uh, go to the BiblePresChurchBPC.org site and you can find go to the Synod links and you'll be able to find messages. I don't know if they've got them all uploaded from this year or not but they will eventually be there and uh, I highly recommend listening to those, watching uh, those messages as you have opportunity. Alright. Uh, let's uh, take our Bibles please. We'll turn to Psalm 142, please. Psalm 142. This psalm written by David when he was in the cave of Adullam, which we uh, took a look at a couple weeks ago, that where he was uh, had had gone had had gone to. I'm not sure if hide's the right word, but uh, certainly get away. Uh, for a time, a place of peace and safety for a bit after his experience at Gath, uh, as he barely escaped there. So, uh, if you're able to stand, uh, please do so as I read God's holy word. Psalm 142 is entitled "A Maskeel of David when he was in the cave." A prayer. So, as we read this, think of it from the aspect of this truly being a prayer. Uh, Think of David's prayer, but then also make it your own. With my voice, I cry out to Yahweh. With my voice, I plead for mercy to Yahweh. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, You know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me. For you will deal bountifully with me. And God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. 
So by way of, of the historical setting, just a bit of review about David in the cave of Adullam. You remember that he went to Gath to flee from Saul and marched in there looking for refuge in the midst of God's enemies, and it didn't happen. The Lord saw to that. The servants of Ahimelech looked at him and said, this guy has been killing Philistines, and we don't know what he's doing here, but they immediately arrested him. And brought him before the king, and so David thinks fast, as you might recall, and acts like a, a, a madman to the point that the king says, just get this guy out of here. I don't need any more madmen. I've got plenty of them already, so let's get him out of here. And so David escapes. And as he flees, then he runs to the vicinity of a town called Adullam and the caves that are mentioned here are those caves are still there and he went into those caves along with uh, a group that had grown uh, he had a few that went with him to Gath uh, he gets to the cave and people just start showing up from uh, nooks and crannies all over Judah and Israel people who were uh, afflicted people who were in debt people who were in trouble presumably with Saul, and were looking for a leader, looking for someone that would give them some hope and perhaps eventually get them out of the predicament that they found themselves in to the tune of about 400 men, and we can presume, I think, safely that this included also families, uh, as we know that uh, families were uh, went along with David and his army as it went around. You see the families mentioned every so often. And so uh, a, a big group of people uh, come to him in this cave complex, which either David fortified or had been previously fortified. It's referred to as a fortress. And David takes refuge there. And, when, and, and, and as he does so, we looked at a couple, time, uh, a, a couple weeks ago that he is not just there to lick his wounds, though when you read this psalm, it sounds like he is, a little bit. But he's also there to regroup. And we talked about the necessity of regrouping and reengaging when we've been through times of affliction and difficulty and not just dissolving into a, a, a pity puddle and saying, all right, Lord, what would you have me to do? And you see David there in the cave beginning to make preparations because he knows, all right, here we go. This, it really is the launching of David's earthly monarchy, his earthly rule, even though he hasn't yet ascended the, the throne. You see the beginnings of it there. And so you might remember, those of you that were, were tuning in last time or were here last time when we spoke about this, that David took his parents and, and uh, shunted them off to Moab. Now, if you have, if you want to, if your Bible has maps, you can look in the back, but maybe you have a map in your head of the Holy Land. And remember, Gath is in the plain that's leading down towards the Mediterranean Sea, and pretty much due east in the foothills of the Judean mountains there, called the Shephelah, uh, is the town of Adullam, and the caves are there. So he flees there. It's about 20 miles east of Gath. 
Mizpah in Moab is clear on the other side of the Dead Sea, over all the mountains. If he goes north, he's going to go right by um, Gibeah, where Saul is. So we're not told, but presumably he went south around the Dead Sea into Moab. You know, we read that in 1 Samuel, and you go, well, he took his parents to Mizpah and Moab and asked the king if he'd take care of them. You know, they didn't have internet. Mail service was probably not running that day. Um, No phones. So David takes his parents by faith, trusting in the Lord in this plan, goes to Moab where he's got distant relatives because of uh, his mother, uh, his ancestor, Ruth. Anyway, it's a long journey. It would have been, it would have taken him several, at least weeks to get there. You don't really see that in the text. It was a tough thing. In the meantime, he's left all of his followers behind there. Who knows what's going to be there when he comes back. But he does come back. So you can imagine in this setting, uh, yes, it's got to be encouraging to see all these people come. Yes, they've got a little respite. And yet there are so many uncertainties as well. And you really see that in this psalm. It's a time of fear, a time of confusion. So David cries cries out to Yahweh, pleading for mercy. Uh, we've, As we talked about mercy before, not too long ago, remember some of the different words for that? Well, this, this one is the word Hanan. It has the idea of showing pity out of kindness. He's pleading for that pity uh, before his covenant God. This, this psalm really is a perfect picture of the wrestling that we do with the Lord as we vacillate back and forth between faith and fear. So we eventually come by his grace to final peace in the midst of every trial. And Yahweh is the one that keeps you through all of those trials. And that really seems to be a a main thought of this particular psalm. So how does does Yahweh keep you through all of those trials? Well, it's revealed here in a few ways. First of all, in verse 2, as well as verse 7, David is crying out to the Lord and it is clear from the way that he is coming before the Lord, he has absolute confidence that Yahweh hears his cries and Yahweh will hear your cries. And here's why. Note in verse 2, something that's repeated twice. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So what does that tell you? It tells you that when you cry out to Yahweh, he is present. He's not somewhere off in the midst of eternity somewhere, uh, unreachable, aloof. David comes before the Lord 
praying with the recognition that as he does so, that God is there with him. You know, prayer really is the appropriate response when you're afflicted. But I love this word uh, complaint here. You know, obviously, I think we all recognize that the word complain has a certain negative connotation, right? Uh, we, somebody that has a complaining spirit, all they do is complain. You know, the, the way we use that, we, we don't really appreciate that. So when we think about uh, coming before the Lord, it, it might be a little jarring to think, well, I'm coming complaining before the Lord. And it, it's almost like if you do that, you almost expect to be dismissed out of hand. Quit your complaining spirit. Quit whining. As uh, my friend Victor Mack loved, loved to say to all his little girls when they were doing that sort of thing when they were growing up, he'd say, take it like a man. Uh, sometimes we expect God to do that to us. Does he ever get tired of our complaint? And yet David comes before him as a child before his father, expecting to be received in the presence of God. The word complaint has, there's a, there's a couple of, the, of, of thoughts here. The idea of being of a concern or with, with troubled thoughts. And that makes sense to us, but there's another use of this word, and it's the word babble. And I, I got to thinking about that. You know, when you look at the, sometimes when you look at the semantic range, all the things that a, a word can mean. Sometimes that can be a little dangerous in interpretation because you can go off on flights of fancy and all of that. But I thought that was a pretty instructive one. When when we're little, we compl- we can complain. And, it, and after a while, what does it sound like to? Uh, parental ears it's just like and it's nonsensical it's like what uh, just stop right and yet if you think about it about the best that we can do in coming before the presence of the most high God is Babel that's why the Holy Spirit's ministry is so important he he's able to to interpret our our stumblings and our mutterings and our stutterings and, pre, and, and, and present us before the Lord. Even when we cannot express our complaints, our concerns, our troubled thoughts clearly, He understands. He hears you. And He hears with compassion. And I, I really see that strongly suggested here in verse 7 where David cries out, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. His compassion is shown a couple of different ways here. David speaks of his situation as of being in prison. This affliction of being chased around the country, of having the king of the land wanting to kill you weighed in on him. And David assumes that Yahweh is compassionate, cares, sympathizes with his affliction, and he certainly does sympathize with your affliction. Because fear, oppression, and affliction of all different kinds, they, those things 
can hem you in, can they not, with bars that are stronger than iron. David obviously is not in prison. But that's the way he feels. He feels like his world is crashing in, collapsing in upon him, and he's caught. He can't escape. And he prays that God would bring him out so that, David says, I may give thanks to your name. I thought of that precious Psalm 107. You might want to turn over there. I'm going to look at verse 10. This prison that we find ourselves in, whether it's literal or figurative, is often as a result of our own folly. And this is the case here in Psalm 107. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and had spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. David uses this prison imagery, as you see here fairly often, to describe the plight of the soul that is far from God. Now David in the cave of Adullam, I think is coming off of uh, uh, a couple of bad choices that he made, that got him into trouble. And he's learned some lessons, and he's learned that part of the hardship that he's undergone, not, not that he thinks he's deserved what he's getting at the hands of Saul. No, he doesn't, and he's right, he doesn't. But as far as, but David, some of his choices have made the situation worse. And I think as we've looked at, we've looked at this before, he recognizes that and he's learned. So when he's coming and praying that the Lord would deliver him out of these, out of this situation, out of this bondage to his circumstances, he recognizes that the Lord is the one who can give that full and complete uh, um, deliverance and is willing to do so because of his compassion and sympathy uh, uh, that uh, the world can't, can't supply us. Our own flesh can't extract us out of the problems in which we find ourselves. And again, many times, problems that maybe they started with somebody else, but we make them worse by our decisions and actions. Or maybe they just start with us right off the gate. In any case, Yahweh's compassion is shown in his sympathy for this, and David prays with that understanding, expecting to give praise to God. Then also uh, in that verse, uh, he doesn't just sympathize with us. Well, yeah, I feel really bad for you. He actually does something about it. And we read this, The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Now you remember a couple of weeks ago, for those of you that were here, you remember we talked about this particular verse uh, as a kind of a, a bit of a incongruous kind of thing because who is David being surrounded by? In 1 Samuel 22. How are they described? You remember? I've already given it to you earlier, just a few minutes ago. But 
They are in debt. They're running from the law. These are the folks that are the off-scouring in many respects of, Israel, of Israeli society. And they're showing up. He's getting the... Uh, he's not getting the cream of the crop. Let's put it that way. These people are going through hard times. And how does David describe them? The righteous will surround me. You know, the word surround, by the way, uh, the root of that word is used in a, a related word that means crowned. And I don't think that the play on words here is an accident. I believe that David is looking at this ultimately with a heart that is confident of ultimate victory. And when we look at the other psalm David writes in the cave, which is Psalm 57, God willing, we'll look at that next week, you really see uh, the, the, the up and down of this psalm is, uh, is, is gone. And the ultimate absolute confidence of the victory of the Lord through David is, is revealed there in Psalm 57. So God willing, we'll look at that next time. But this, this ragtag bunch of the miserable may not look like much to the world. If Saul and his troops should show up there, they would look at them and they would pretty much hold them in scorn. Yet this miserable bunch are faithful unto the Lord. They are termed the righteous, and they're the Lord's. And the Lord builds an army from them to bring himself glory. The Lord's compassion goes beyond just sympathizing with us. He surrounds us with help. He gives us each other. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. And not only each other in this body, but he also gives us faithful brothers and sisters in other, in other uh, God-fearing congregations that uh, are, are in our community, in our denomination, around the world. We're not alone. And uh, we're going to see a little bit more about that in a minute. So I won't say any more about that uh, being alone bit. Hang on to that. Um, as David works these themes through. So he's been up and down uh, through this section so far. Now, let's look at the next, the next thing that helps us understand how Yahweh keeps us through our trials. And that is found in verses 3 and 6. And in those verses, you really see David's enemies being described. See, the Lord doesn't just hear your cries. He actually understands your enemy. That he knows your enemy better than you do. If you think about it, what is one of the primary causes of fear? Um, one of them could be a lack of control. But a prime cause of fear is not knowing. Think about that for a minute. In pretty much 
I don't know if anybody here are Trekkie fans. Every single Star Trek episode that I ever watched basically followed the same plot patterns. Just as, as bad as the Hallmark Channel. You know, they got one plot. Uh, they're out there doing something that they know how to do. They're all competent in. Uh, some alien, some planet, some force, something else that they don't understand hits and panic ensues and it's, it, everything's, everything is full of fear and everything is uncertain and that's where all the dramatic tension comes in, right? And then somewhere along the way, Captain Kirk figures out what it is. Now we know what it is. All the fear goes away. We handle the problem. Go home. Right? Oh, and he gets the girl at the end. But it all has to do with with that understanding of if we can know our enemy, if we can know what's coming, if we can know how they operate, we'll be fine. Because then we'll be able to handle it. Am I right? That's the way we work. The problem is, is that our enemies are beyond us. David mentions that. And we can know some things about them. Enemies that are outside of us, in terms of maybe in the community. We know if we've got folks that are working a contrary purpose to the righteousness of God, we come to understand them, we figure out what their arguments are, we figure out where their, uh, where their funding comes from, where their support network is, all that sort of thing. And we formulate a strategy and we go to it. But even when we do that, we really can't anticipate all that they'll do, all that they'll think, what changes they might, they might engage in. It forces us to reevaluate everything. And often, the best efforts that we do um, come to what seems to us to a dead end or failure because they were stronger than we were. But Yahweh knows your enemies. And the description of these enemies is not really great. It's, uh, it's fearful. Verse 3. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. This is a governing statement that helps temper everything that he's going to say about enemies after this. If that statement wasn't there, it'd be a pretty hopeless thing. But... Because Yahweh knows. That's where he's resting. Then he goes on to describe why that's so important. Because, first of all, your enemies strike you when you are at your weariest. When you're the most vulnerable, your enemies strike. In the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. I love what David says in Psalm 40 and verse 2, which is... Kind of the flip side of this, where he he rejoices that to say that Yahweh drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Even when our enemies set traps for us, our Lord knows what those traps are. We don't know what they are, but He does, and He's the one who makes your steps secure. Of course, we're not just talking about enemies out there. We have 
the enemy of our own soul, our own our own sinful desires and and uh, sense of of oughtness of what should be what we how we would order the world and our agendas and all of those kinds of things the weakness of our flesh and those things we may think we have it covered we we've worked through that temptation we've 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 fought against that we've done our devotions we've done our prayer we've gone to church and then we get tired something happens to bring sadness and affliction and sorrow in our lives. And suddenly all those things that we read in the Scriptures, all those admonitions we heard from the pulpit, all those encouragements from friends seem to melt away and we get hammered as we succumb to temptation again. Because your enemy will strike you when you're weary. And they will scheme. These are hidden traps. It's a, they're scheming. Your flesh and the devil scheme against you. We don't have the option, if we want to be victorious in this Christian life, to just kind of waltz through the world in la-la land and not give a thought to our souls. We need to be vigilant, certainly. But recognize that even in our vigilance, there's a limit to that that our ultimate faith and confidence has to be in the Lord who knows our way. Because as we see in verse 6, your enemies are not out to play games. They're trying to kill you. They're seeking your life. The word persecutors there in verse 6 means pursuers. This is not an occasional somebody calling you a bad name or somebody giving an occasional, an occasional temptation. This is the relentless pursuit of your adversary to destroy you. David recognizes that he's in that condition. And yet again, under the umbrella, Yahweh knows my way. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, this is so important because your enemy's strength is truly greater than yours. As he says in verse 6, they're too strong for me, David says. Oh, we need to avoid being cocky in our Christian walk about how well we're doing. That's a sure path to fall, to falling. But again, Yahweh knows this. Even though all this doesn't seem very encouraging, The fact that, he, that Yahweh knows all of this and is undismayed by it ought to encourage your heart. He is greater than your enemies, dear friends. He knows your enemies better than you do. Better than your enemies know themselves. He knows you better than you know yourself. And because of that, because He knows our way, because He's provided the way of deliverance, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because He's the one who knows our enemies. If, if our Lord didn't understand how all that works, didn't understand our enemies, and certainly if He wasn't greater than them, 
uh, our hope and faith would be pretty pointless. Pretty pointless. But it's not pointless because of who he is and what he knows. And then finally we come to the heart of this little psalm in verses 4 and 5. Interesting contrast here. Remember, this psalm is about contrast between fear and faith. Verse 4, Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. That's a downer of a verse, isn't it? Your fears may seem overwhelming. Now why the right side? When I look to the right side, what does that, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, if, if, you've, if you've been around the book a little while, you'll know that the right side is a place of favor, a place of strength, the place where you would expect your, your strongest help to come from would be the right side. And David is saying, I look to the right side where I, what I would expect help, where I would expect strength, and I've got nothing. I've got nothing. To David's eye at first, he could, when he was in one of the, the troughs of his, his uh, despair at this situation, all he could see was the trough. All he could see was the darkness. All he could see was the affliction. He couldn't see any help. He's really and truly on the run. He has no real safe haven anywhere. So in the cave there, and perhaps as he's marching to Moab day after day after day, and then marching back alone, or maybe he had a few others that went with him, but he, he's got lots of time to reflect, and there's certainly times when you can see from this verse that he just couldn't see a way out. So he has a little bit of a pity party here. No one cares. No one cares. Apparently he was forgetting, well, his family all showed up and there's this 400 people in their family, so he's got probably a thousand people in the caves there, but no one cares. Isn't that the way we are sometimes? No one loves me. No one cares. I, I don't know what's going to happen here. I'm, I'm all alone. No, you're not. You're not all alone. You are surrounded here by people who love you. And more than that, you're surrounded by your God who loves you better than any of us can love you. You're not alone. Even though your fears seem overwhelming, our God is there. So David, as he says that, oh, there's no refuge. There's no place. Then he turns and says, wait a minute. He turns from himself and he looks to Yahweh. In verse 5, I cry to you, O Yahweh. I say, you are my refuge. He just said, no refuge remains to me. <laughs> and then he did that, you know, the face palm thing. He goes, oh, wait a minute. Yahweh's my refuge. Yahweh's my refuge. And though your fears may seem overwhelming, those fears melt away as you hide yourself in him. David would say in Psalm 23, familiar verse to all of us, 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The word refuge is a wonderful word. It doesn't just mean shelter, though that's one of the dictionary definitions of it. But it has the idea of finding in that place all that you want and need. David's hiding in a cave. A cave that he knows that however fortified it is, his enemies will find it. He's not really secure there, at least long term. There in the cave, uh, David spent a lot of time in caves. And he he had to leave all of them because they ultimately couldn't satisfy what was necessary. Only the Lord could do that. And he looks to Yahweh as his ultimate refuge. I'm here in this cave, Lord, but you are the one I'm really hiding in, is what that comes down to. This kind of thought is is developed by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. I invite you to turn over there with me. A passage that I hope is familiar to you. Romans chapter 8. I'll begin reading at verse 31 and read to the end of the chapter. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yahweh hears your cries. He knows who your enemies are. He knows how to deal with them. And He delivers you. He overcomes your fears. However overwhelming they are, as you hide in Him, He's provided a Savior. He's provided the the genuine refuge that provides all that your heart desires. Now, back in Psalm 142, Very quickly, I want you to notice something as we conclude. I mentioned earlier that this psalm has a lot of up and down, and I didn't really point out too much of the up and down, but I want to do so now because it really draws all this together. There are three affirmations in this psalm that are kind of the glue that holds everything together when it seems like the world is falling apart. Number one uh, is in verse three, and I did point that out earlier. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. David makes this confident statement. The first thing that you need to recognize is that Yahweh 
is your, I'm going to use the word pathfinder. When you don't know your way, he does. Contrast that with the paths of the wicked are trying to force you to follow into entrapment. The Lord sets your feet on the rock on the right path. The second affirmation is in verse 5. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Yahweh is your portion. Literally that word means land. It implies inheritance. And that goes along with the whole refuge idea that, that in Him you find all that you need. We do have a precious inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. An inheritance, an inheritance of peace, of joy, of fulfillment, of, 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 of knowledge of our God in this life and in the life to come. Because He is our portion. Then we can be full and satisfied. Right? Our our portion as a church is not this building. As as nice as it is. These days we're aware of maybe the need or the desire for a little air conditioning might be nice. Maybe a little more space. We're working on that. But with all of that, if all we have is this building, that's pretty pathetic. It's Yahweh Himself who is our temple in whom we hide. And because of that, in spite of the overwhelming fears that are there, um, we can be at peace. The final affirmation is found in verse 7. Um, in that phrase, you will deal bountifully with me. He's our pathfinder. He's our portion. He is our provider. World, the, the phrase deal bountifully translates a word that means to ripen something. Or to deal, deal out. Like when it's, when it's full, he administers out of his abundance is the idea. He administers blessing to us in abundance. And as David recognizes these things, in between the the fears and the tears, as he remembers that Yahweh knows his way and is himself David's portion, recognizing all of the bounty that that, uh, he gives. David helps us to understand how that hearing you Defending you, sheltering you, Yahweh keeps you through every trial. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this reminder that you are the ones, the one who keeps us. For truly we need a keeper. The afflictions of this life, both outside of ourselves and within our own hearts as we wrestle with sin are too great for us, but they are not too great for you. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for doing what is necessary to bring us to glory through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.